May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O God, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. You can be seated. This morning I want to preach to you based on the Gospel reading from Luke uh, chapter 14. And here Jesus teaches us the way to significance in the kingdom of God. And he says in verse 11, which is, I think, the key verse of this passage, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and everyone who humbles himself will be exalted. Humility is the way to significance in the kingdom of God. So often our search for significance in our search for significance, our natural default is to look to others. Look to others to praise us or to honor us or to exalt us. And this starts at a very early age. A little toddler will bring their scribbles to mommy and and daddy or grandma and grandpa and say, look what I did. And they want to hear you praising them. They want to hear you say, that's wonderful. You know, what exactly is it? (laughs) This desire for praise, something that's hardwired into us. There are many young people today who have a goal in life to be famous. There was a poll taken over 10 years ago now, but I think it's still relevant. This was the Pew Research Company um, organization who took a poll and asked young people 18 to 25, what is their goal in life? And over 50%, it's like 51% said their number one goal or their number two goal was to be famous. This search for significance based on how other people are perceiving me. And that's not just about young people, of course. I was reading about a, a, a man whose goal was to make millions. He set his sights on being a millionaire because he came from humble exam, uh, circumstances and he wanted to prove to himself and to the world that he had made it. And he wanted to achieve such a level of success that there would be no doubt in the eyes of other people based on where he lived and the house he lived in and the car he drove that he had arrived. He wanted to, as the writer put it, broadcast his success for other people to see. So this desire to be exalted in the eyes of others drives us. And yet Jesus says in the kingdom of God, it's the humble who will be exalted. This is significant because this section of Luke, in this section of Luke, Jesus is talking about what it looks like to be part of the kingdom of God. Remember last week he talked about the narrow door into the kingdom. And that, that discourse, that teaching was prompted by a question of how many people are going to be in the kingdom of God. And Jesus says, strive to enter the narrow gate. Many people think they're going to be in the kingdom. But they won't be because they have not gone through the narrow gate of faith and repentance. And so uh, last week we talked about the kingdom of God and how many people are going to be there. But here the teaching begins to shift to the quality of the people in the kingdom of God. What characterizes citizens of the kingdom? And humility is at the top of the list. And so what he teaches here, I think, can help all of us grow and appreciate humility, grow into humility and appreciate it. He gives here a principle to apply to our life, a principle to kind of hang on to as we go through life and in our relationships. 
and then the practice of humility. So first, the principle in this first part of the teaching. And the principle is very simply, we are not to strive for honor. We're not to seize it. One commentator put it this way, honor is not to be seized, it is to be awarded. Not to be seized, but awarded. Something that's bestowed upon you. And the setting for this teaching is a dinner party on the Sabbath day with a ruler of the Pharisees. And that means that Jesus is in elite company here. Uh, he is hanging out with, we might say today, the one percenters. Uh, the, the ruler of the Pharisee would have been part of the Sanhedrin, which was a select group of Jewish leaders in Jerusalem. This was the highest court in Judaism. And maybe an analogy today would be something like going to your senator's house in Washington, D.C. and having dinner with him or her. He was in elite company. These people were connected. They were connected to power and privilege. And Jesus, he looks around this room. Imagine that you're there sitting there next to Jesus as he's saying these things. And he tells a very pointed story. It's very obvious. You can Imagine the tension in the room is beginning to mount as Jesus looks around at this elite group and they're jockeying for position to get the greatest seat, the seat of honor. And in those days, in this culture, honor was really the goal of life. Public praise was a primary ambition. This was an honor shame culture. So it was more important, more important than being a good person more important than being a moral person, more important than pleasure or health, was public honor. And the worst thing that could happen was public shame. And so what Jesus says is quite radical and shocking. He says, let's just imagine you're at a party, (laughs) a wedding feast, and you think that you deserve to sit in the VIP section And so you go to this place of honor. But a little later, a more distinguished guest arrives. And so now the host has to come to you and say, excuse me, but Dr. So-and-so is here and you need to get out of his seat. You go sit over there. And Jesus's point is that in front of everybody, you're going to be shamed instead of honor. You'll be humiliated in your pursuit of honor, in your desire to seize it. You could be humiliated. So honor is not to be seized, but awarded. It's better to take the lowest place and then the host may promote you. And so Jesus is trying to to get these religious leaders and he's always trying to get his disciples to understand how leadership works in the kingdom of God. This is an important lesson for all of us, but particularly for people like me who wear a collar. Jesus was always teaching his disciples to understand that the way leadership operates and honor operates in the kingdom is different than how it operates in the world. Remember the time that the disciples are arguing about who was the greatest among them. They're trying to rank each other in terms of honor. And Jesus takes a child and he says, if you want to be great in the kingdom, you have to be like this little child. The greatest shall be least and the least shall be greatest. And then there was a time when James and John were arguing about 
where they were going to sit. Who gets to sit on the right or the left hand of Jesus when he comes into the kingdom? A position of honor. And that prompted Jesus to say, even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life away as a ransom for many. If you're going to be part of this kingdom movement, you have to understand that honor is found in the place of humility and in the place of service. And so I find that to be very helpful as a minister. And I would say to all ordained people and all those seeking ordination, this is a principle that we have to get our minds around, our hearts around, and something we have to constantly pray about. We have to pray against pride and understand that our significance does not depend on a place of honor or prestige and power in the eyes of the world. Our significance doesn't depend on the number of people that we're serving or the largest largeness of our platform. The kingdom value is, am I serving Christ? How am I serving Christ and his people in this place where God has put me? How am I using the gifts that God has given to me to serve others? And if God wants to enlarge my influence, fine, but I'm not going to. It's not about that. I'm not going to seize that. I'm going to serve in the place that he has put me. That's not just for ordained folks or people aspiring to be ordained, but anybody serving in the church. This principle needs to be operating in the life of the church from Every volunteer up through the vestry, because that is what makes for a healthy church. Serving cannot be about gaining honor for myself. It's right to honor those to whom honor is due. The scripture does teach that. But that is not, of course, the goal. And so when I don't get the recognition that I think I I deserve Or when people don't adopt my plan or proposal or agenda, if I have this in my heart, I I can just let that roll off. It's not a big deal because it's it's not about me. It's about Christ and his people. When I trust Christ is at work for good. That's what makes for a healthy church. And, And it's interesting that this principle of Pursuing humility and not self-promotion is something that even in the business world, people are talking about the value of this among business leaders. I mean, in the in the famous book, uh, Good to Great, Jim Collins studied the best companies and he talked about the best leaders of these companies. These were companies that outperformed the market three times. It was three times better than the competition and they outperformed the market for over 25 years. That was the criteria. What makes a great company? And he looked at these leaders and he said, it's interesting, there's this paradox. They are driven, they are ambitious. It's not about squelching that, but they combine that with a humility that their employees recognize and see and appreciate. And as his team did interviews with the employees of these CEOs, they said things like their leader was unassuming and courteous and listened and asked questions and put the interest of the company above their own. There's an attractive quality to that, isn't there, when you see it? But by contrast, leaders who are in it for themselves often caused pain and confusion and made disastrous decisions in their ambitious pursuit of prestige. 
So this value of humility, it's something that we see in so many areas of life. I mean, it works in family relationships, in marriage, in parenting, in learning. We, we need to approach all this with humility. We need to lend a listening ear. We need to sometimes set aside our agenda for the sake of the other. So don't strive, Jesus is saying, to these leaders. Don't strive for a position of honor. If that comes, great. But don't manipulate your way there. And then as the story unfolds, Jesus teaches us a practice that can help us grow in humility, in becoming the people that God has called us to be. He gives us something very practical to do and to think about. He said to the man who had invited him. Again, imagine the tension created by this. He looks right at the host and says, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest in return they invite you and you be repaid. This is how it kind of worked in Jesus's day. You wanted to invite people who were a little more rich, a little more powerful than you. So then they were expected to reciprocate and invite you to their place. And in that way, your status in the public could go up. You could kind of move up the social ladder. And so part of the motive of these gatherings, these dinner parties, was really about moving up the social ladder. And it was expected that people would reciprocate. But Jesus proposed something very radical when he said, now when you give a feast, invite the poor. And the crippled and the lame and the blind. And that was radical. No elite would ever do that because there would be no social benefit to invite such people. They were the marginalized in their mind. They were the expendables. They had nothing to offer anybody. So why would you invite them to your place? And not only that, people were superstitious in those days. And they thought, you know what, if somebody has a physical problem like blindness or lameness or if they have leprosy, then they must have a moral problem. And a spiritual problem. And so that will create a problem with me spiritually. I will be unclean. That's how these Pharisees thought. And so they did not want to be tainted. They did not want to be impure. And to dine with such folks, to be at table with such folks would have been a cause for shame. But Jesus is reminding this leader of the Jews of something that is central to the Jewish faith. It's central to the Jewish way of life. It's a prominent feature of Jewish ethics. And that is those who are blessed ought to bless others, especially those who don't have much. The dispossessed. So we read today in our Old Testament reading, Deuteronomy 26, the Lord says to Israel, Bring out a tithe of your produce, bring it to the town and let the let the Levite and the sojourner and the orphan and the widows and others let people who are destitute, who don't have the resources you have, let them come and eat and be filled from your abundance. In Psalm 112, the righteous man is the one who distributes freely. He has given to the poor. See, this way of living using the abundance that you have to bless those who don't have is consistent with the character of God. This is why God is always reminding the people of Israel to remember where they came from and to remember that you were once 
poor. You were once enslaved. You were once wandering in the desert without food or water. And I provided for you. I delivered you. I brought you into a family. I fed you. I nurtured you through the wilderness. So don't forget where you came from. And don't forget the character of God. God is teaching Israel again and again. And Jesus is just calling them back to that principle here. Jesus assures us that as we give to those who can't give back, even though we may never be recognized or rewarded in this world, God will reward. God does see. You will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid when? At the resurrection of the just. This is something we've been talking about these last couple of weeks. Living with an eternal perspective in mind. Living in this Life, which is transitory and goes quickly with an eternal perspective in mind. We want to hear God say, well done, good and faithful servant. And Jesus teaches us here that part of bringing glory to God in this life is to use our resources for the good of others. And we will be blessed as a result. As I thought about that, that sort of practical instruction that Jesus gives. I thought about examples in our congregation of people who are giving, expecting nothing in return, not looking for rewards in this life, but in the life to come. People who give to others in humble circumstances. And that's challenging to me, and it builds up the body of Christ. So I thought about people who give up their time to visit um, Nursing homes. And think about people who are on the margins of our culture today. People who are sort of overlooked and underappreciated. If there's any group of people, probably it's those oftentimes in the nursing home. And yet we have people here who have a ministry to the the nursing homes and others who go to visit those in the nursing homes. I think about people who've opened up their homes to take people in who don't have a home. In this country, those who are sojourners and there are people in this congregation who are taking them in and others who are supporting that. It's a reflection of the generous heart of God when we see that. I think of people who invite strangers around their table for dinner. And uh, the world will never know about these are ordinary Christians doing ordinary things and they're not going on Facebook or Instagram and bragging about it. They're not participating. They're not doing the humble brag, it's called, you know. Ordinary Christians living out this value of giving to those who can't give back, giving to those in humble circumstances. I thought about um, David Brooks, who's a columnist for The New York Times, and he has just written a book about his journey from atheism to belief. And he says he calls himself a wandering Jew and a confused Christian. He's still trying to figure things out, but he's going to church. He's participating in the life of the church, and he's trying to figure out where he's at as a Christian and wrestle with some of the intellectual questions. But in talking in in, in this interview, I heard from David Brooks, he talked about one thing that really was a catalyst for him to move from that place of atheism to belief. And it had to do with a dinner party. It had to do with a couple 
a couple, uh, a married couple, David and Kathy were their name, who every Thursday night they would host uh, a family meal, they called it, for teenagers who did not have much of a place to go. It all started when their son was in the public school system and he would bring troubled kids home to their house and they would start getting to know their story and their life and inviting them to dinner. And then these teens started to invite other teens. And then before you know it, you've got 15, 20, 25 teenagers around this table. Some of them had been homeless. Some of them had been abused. Some of them were battling addiction. They were overlooked and undervalued in society. But this couple, this couple of faith, brought them around a table. And David Brooks said, when I saw that kind of love and fellowship, as an atheist, I didn't have any categories. I, didn't, I could not explain this on an atheistic worldview. The church ought to be a place like that. The church is, at its best, a place like that. Where people from all backgrounds are welcome. Where people of humble circumstance are welcome. Welcomed into our very homes, around our table. The writer of Hebrews says that we ought to practice hospitality. That is a practice of the Christian life. Welcomed into our homes, at our table. And then welcomed together with us in worship as they receive Christ and gather around this table, this place of fellowship. The table of the Lord. To partake in a family meal. What a witness to the world. And this is what really brings, I think we can all say, this is what brings fulfillment in life. And when you reach out in love to another person and lift them up, it brings great fulfillment in life. Loving others as God has loved us. You see, what's going on, I think, in our culture, and it was happening in the first century, is that people have a void that they seek to fill, and they think the praise of other people is going to fulfill this emptiness. But that emptiness is meant to be filled by God. The God who has revealed himself in Jesus Christ. Jesus, who humbled himself, even to the point of death on the cross, to bear our shame. So that we would know God's love. So he could prove to us the love of God. And when we are filled with that love, then we're free to serve others in humility and love. Amen. Amen. Amen.